You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 159 by Rudolf Steiner, 15 lectures, entitled The Mystery of Death, translated by Simon Blacksland DeLange. This is Lecture 4, given in Leipzig on the 7th of March, 1915, entitled The Intimate Element of Central European Culture and Its Aspirations. We live in difficult, destiny-laden times, and what these destiny-laden times will bring to us earthly human beings is something that very few souls anticipate with full confidence. Moreover, the significance of what comes to expression through the events of these days does not speak to souls with any degree of clarity. However, it is precisely those who try, as human souls, increasingly to enter into what should be assimilated by way of impulses into the cultural evolution of humanity, into the spiritual evolution of culture, through the demands of spiritual science, who should know themselves to be connected in their deepest, innermost feelings with what is taking place around us, on the one hand on so vast a scale, and on the other hand so painfully and so distressingly. What is taking place is something that not only in its nature but also in its degree is indeed without parallel in the conscious history of human evolution, that enters deeply and decisively into every living aspect of earthly evolution. One needs but to gain an inner sense of what it means, and this applies today to every person in Europe, to stand amidst the course of events of such significance in order to feel that this is a time when it is not only eminently right, but also eminently necessary, that the soul frees itself ever more and more from a mere life within its own self, within its own ego, and to try to share in the experience of the common fate that has befallen mankind. The soul will, in our present time, be able to learn much if it knows to connect itself in the right way with the stream of events, and it will be able to free itself from much pettiness and selfishness if it knows how to do this. Things of such magnitude are happening that virtually any thinking purely of oneself in this time of ours must be seen as a robbery that our soul commits with respect to living in association with common destinies. And what immense questions, especially those living in Central Europe, must be asking themselves about things that they can really only learn now. Such people can become aware that they are misunderstood and indeed hated. These misunderstandings, this hatred, did not really emerge since the beginning of the war. It is only that they became apparent from that time. Thus the beginning of the war and the course of the war are also merely that which makes Central European souls aware that they must feel themselves, in a certain sense, more or less increasingly isolated with regard to the feelings of those people who surround the inhabitants of Central Europe with feelings and sensibilities that are thoroughly lacking in understanding. How desirable it would be, especially now, if in the souls that are dedicated to spiritual science one could kindle an intensified interest in the great events of life, which lead the soul out from the horizon of its ego 
to the great horizon of human and earthly events. What benefit there would be if precisely in the souls that have embraced spiritual science their vision and mental outlook could be extended to a knowledge of the wider forces involved and thus bring them out of an interest in narrower forces concerned merely with the human individual. For indeed, when one hears today what the world, and especially the world around us, as Central Europeans is saying, when one reads what strange things are being said about the impulses that are supposed to have led to this war, one has the feeling that mankind has completely lost the obligation to judge in accordance with wider viewpoints in our materialistic age, to the extent that one sometimes has the impression that people had learned nothing whatsoever but that for them history really began on 25 July 1914. It is as though people knew nothing of what has taken place in the interplay of forces among the earth's population and what has accordingly led to the problematic complications that finally ignited and flared up in the flame of the war. Hardly anything is said of the encirclement tactics of the former English king who has united the European powers around Central Europe so that in the end, because of this union of the surrounding human forces, the only possible consequence was what has arisen. Hardly anyone is likely to go back a few years or at most decades and endeavor to form some ideas of how what now so painfully and fatefully surrounds us has come about. But things lie at a much, much deeper level. When one speaks of encirclement, one must say, What has been accomplished as regards the encircling of the Central European powers in recent times has been the last stage, the final step of an encirclement of Central Europe, which began a long, long time ago and already in the year 860, at that time when the Norsemen or Vikings who swept down from the north of Europe were gathered before Paris, a part of the power which was to come to full expression in Europe entered in the west of Europe into the Roman stream that had flooded into western Europe from the south. We have a stream of human forces that pours from Rome by way of Italy, Sicily, and modern Spain, and through what is now France, while the Viking invaders who came from the north and in 860 were before Paris, are overwhelmed by the Roman stream deriving from antiquity and are absorbed in this Roman stream. The vigor possessed by this stream derives from the Viking element that is absorbed within it. And what arose in the West as something alien to Central European culture derives from the Roman stream that had flooded into it. This Roman stream did not simply come to a halt in modern France, but through its dogmatically rationalistic nature, through its inclination toward a materialist manner of thinking, it proved itself well capable of overwhelming not only France, but when the Normans then reached out their hands to what are today the Anglo-Saxon lands, of causing the decisive element in what came to the Anglo-Saxon world to lie not in what the Vikings had brought from the north to the south, but in what they had received from the south. Also in the British element, it is the Roman element that thereby opposes, without understanding, what lives in Central Europe. And this Norman element infiltrated by the Roman element has further extended beyond the coasts of Greece to Constantinople.
so that we see a flood of Viking-imbued Roman culture moving down from the European north to the west, encircling Central Europe in a snake-like form and extending its tentacles as far as Constantinople. The other migratory movement emanating from the north we see flowing to the east and penetrating into the Slavic world. The first Viking invaders were given the name of Ross by the largely Finnish inhabitants of what is now modern Russia, hence the name Russians, which is therefore reminiscent of the name that the Finns gave to the Viking population. We see these Nordic peoples extending into the Slavic element, entering ever further into it, and at the same time, when the Vikings had gathered before Paris and began the process of their Romanization, we see the Viking element becoming immersed in the Slavic stream, and on the other hand, moving down to beyond Kiev and on to Constantinople, and the circle is closed. The Norse or Viking forces move down on the one hand to the west and become Romanized, and on the other hand to the east, where they are Slavicized, and as they approach from east and west, they collide with one another in Constantinople. And in Central Europe, there is enclosed as in a kind of cultural basin what remains of the primal Germanic world, fructified by the ancient Celtic world. And this Germanic world then finds expression in the most diverse ways in the populations that manifest themselves as the inhabitants of Germany, Holland, and Scandinavia. Thus we see how old this encirclement is. In this central Europe there is now being prepared what we can call an intimate culture, a culture that was never in a position of developing as does culture in the West or in the East, but which had to take a completely different course. If we compare the culture that has developed in Central Europe with what has developed in the West, we would be bound to say that in the West there developed, and this can be seen from the smallest and most prominent characteristics of this culture, a culture whose basic character can be traced from the British Isles by way of France and Spain to Sicily and Italy and to Constantinople. The basic feature of the culture that developed was a certain dogmatism, a rationalism, a longing to clothe all the knowledge that one acquires in simple rationalistic formulas. There developed an impulse to view things in the way that reason and the senses must see them. Let us take an instance that as students of spiritual science is familiar territory to us, the structuring of our human soul in three members, sentient soul, intellectual or mind soul, and consciousness soul. The human soul can actually only be understood when one knows that it consists of these three members. Just as little as light can be understood without discerning the various colors in their origin, and without knowing that it is divided into the various nuances of color that we see in the rainbow, on the one side the red and yellow rays, and on the other blue, green, and violet, and that if one does not know this, one cannot as a physicist study light, so would one be equally little able to study the human soul, which is infinitely more important, without making a comparable discernment. For each person is a human being and should know about the soul. Anyone who does not feel in his soul that it finds expression in the three members of sentient soul, intellectual or mind soul, and consciousness soul, 
will end up becoming totally confused about it all. We see this in modern university psychologists who muddle everything up when they speak of the soul. Just as people get into a tangle about the nuances of color and light and in their immense arrogance and their scientific sense of superiority, they regard themselves as quite especially learned when they create the utmost confusion in the soul life. Whereas, one can only come to know the soul if one is in a position to really know about this threefold nature of the soul. Whereas the sentient soul is initially also what makes manifest a person's desires, the more feeling-related impulses in earthly existence, what we may call the more sensory aspect of man's being, this sentient soul nevertheless at the same time contains in its deeper parts the eternal motivating forces of human nature, those forces which go through birth and death. The intellectual or mind-soul contains in equal measure a temporal and an eternal aspect. The consciousness-soul, as it is now, contains primarily man's orientation toward things of a temporal nature. Hence it is understandable that the people which its folk-soul forms through the consciousness-soul, the British people, has, in line with a very beautiful remark made by Goethe, nothing of the quality of profound reflection, but is oriented toward the practical, toward outward competitiveness. It is perhaps not bad to call such things to mind, for those who have participated in German cultural life have not been blind to these things, but have always spoken about them very clearly. Thus to Eckermann, it was some time ago, but one can see that great Germans have always seen things in their true light when it was a question of philosophers, such as Hegel, Fichte, Kant, and also several others, Goethe said, yes, yes, whereas Germans torment themselves with solving the deepest philosophical problems, the English are oriented primarily, or even solely, toward the practical. They lack any sense of reflection. And even when, said Goethe, they make declarations about the morality of liberating slaves, one has to ask, what is the real objective behind this? And on another occasion, Goethe wrote something that is highly significant and speaks more than many volumes, that even Walter Scott once admitted that even though the English had taken part in the battles against Napoleon, it was more important for them to, quote, keep a British objective in view, close quote, than all the liberation of peoples that was being spoken about at that time. A German philologist, and there is little that the industry of German philologists cannot unearth, has discovered in the nine thick volumes of Walter Scott's biography of Napoleon the place where, to which Goethe was alluding, where Walter Scott admits that the British did indeed participate in the battles against Napoleon, but that there was behind this the wish to gain a British advantage. That is, as he puts it, Quote, to secure the British object, close quote. It is a typically English remark. One has only to look for them. These things are interesting as a means of somewhat widening our perspective today. Thus one needs to know, as I said, that the human soul consists of these three members, or rather, that the human self works through these three soul nuances, just as light works through the various nuances of color.
primarily in the three kingdoms of mineral, plant, and animal. One then comes to see that in that he has these three soul nuances, man can assign a great deal to each of them and must do so in the course of human evolution. That the ideal of these soul nuances is a great ideal, but each of these ideals is only one of the soul nuances and is not for the whole soul. And only when, through spiritual science, people come to the point of attributing to the individual soul members the respective ideals will what can be the true ideal of healing for humanity and of an harmonious interaction between human beings on the earth become a reality. For man must aspire to what is associated mainly with his sentient soul, to what he gives expression to in the context of the physical plane, which is a different ideal from which he expresses through the intellectual or mind soul. And he must again aspire to a different ideal for that to which he gives expression through the consciousness soul. Through one of these ideals the one soul member is ennobled, through the other another soul member is ennobled. If one develops the one soul member, especially through the brotherhood of human beings on the earth, one must develop the other through freedom and the third through equality. These three ideals each relate to one soul member. In the west of Europe, everything is muddled up, and what the rationalists did was to simplify everything in the smooth formulas and dogmas that rationalism likes to make everything clear and reasonable. Through this dogmatism, the whole human soul was simply regarded as one, and freedom, brotherhood, and equality were spoken of as simple entities. So we see that in the West a fundamentally rationalistic cultural trend lies hidden. And we could extend this scrutiny into the details. For example, well-educated French people can spend time pondering if, shall we say, the lines of my mystery dramas are iambic pentameters and do, but do not rhyme. The French mind cannot understand that the inner impulse of language, at this level, does not require rhyme. It stands for sophistication, for what outwardly forms a framework, and it says one cannot have lines that do not rhyme. Thus it is also with outer life. Thus it is with everything. In the West there is this insistence on dividing, systematizing, putting everything nicely in boxes. But just consider what a terrible thing it was that at the beginning of our spiritual scientific endeavors, through the fact that many of our friends were still influenced by the English theosophical movement, in every branch or group that one entered one could find, as one looked up all manner of systems, nicely written on cards, blackboards and so on, Atma, Buddhi, Manas. Then all sorts of horizontal and vertical lines representing various systems and categories. Consider how one has bowed beneath the yoke of this dogmatism, and how difficult it was to put in its place the methods of inner development that we must have in Central Europe. That the one arises from the other, that concepts are developed further in inner experience. One cannot use systematization these donkey bridges of the mind that bring everything into quite definite formulas. What an effort it costs to show that it is a question of going from one thing to the other, 
of a consequential sequence of division and development, of a living, organic, formative process. I could extend this description to all areas of life, but we would have to stay here all day. So we find this in the West as the one part of the stream that encircled Central Europe. And if we turn to the East, we must say, here we have to do with a longing that expresses the exact opposite, with a longing to let everything today disappear in a mist of indistinctness, in a primitive elemental mysticism, in something that does not present what is being directly expressed in clear ideas and clear words. We indeed have two snakes. The symbolism is absolutely appropriate, one of which extends from the north to the southeast, and the other from the north to the southwest, and which become entangled with one another around Constantinople. And enclosed in the midst of them we have what we can call the intimate Central European cultural stream, where, if it appears in its primal distinctive quality, the head can never be separated from the heart, and thinking can never be separated from feeling. One does not as yet completely see this in our spiritual science, because there has to be an effort in the direction not of conceptual systematization, but nonetheless of concepts of evolution. People do not yet see that everything that is striven for there is not merely intellectual stimulation, but that the heart and the whole soul are connected at every level, that the heart is intimately engaged when, for example, the head describes the transitions from Saturn to the sun, from the sun to the moon, from the moon to the earth, and so on, that the heart is at every moment involved in the description. And one can be moved at the deepest level as one ascends from one's heartfelt feeling into the highest heights and dives down into the deepest depths and can again rise up from there. It is not yet noticed today that what is only seemingly described in concepts must at the same time be inscribed with one's heart's blood if it is to correspond to Central European spiritual life. This intimate element of Central European culture cannot conceive of the spiritual without the ideal or the ideal without the spiritual. To come to know the spirit in order at the same time to enter with the spirit into a kind of marriage of the soul is a moment that characterizes to the most intense degree the essential nature of Central Europe. Hence this Central European nature can use that which descends into the deepest depths of sensory experience and sensory feeling in order to become a symbol for the all-highest. And it is deeply significant when Goethe, after he had let the life not only of a typical German but of a typical human being, the life of Faust, pass by before his soul, concludes his poem with the words, quote, everything transient is but a semblance, close quote, and ends with these last words, quote, the eternal feminine leads us onwards, close quote. Here a cosmic mystery is expressed through a sensory image, and in this sensory image there comes to expression the intimate character of Central European culture, this wonderfully intimate character that we find so beautifully and tenderly expressed, and at the same time rising spiritually to the heights in, for example, Novalis. 
If you look at the translations that have been made here and there of this last phrase, uh, German, das ewig weibliche, zieht uns hinan, especially the French translations, you will see what has been made of it. It has often not been rendered very lucidly by Frenchmen, but they do not count on this when it is a matter of understanding Faust. Intimacy of the spiritual life is in the most eminent sense what Central Europe, in its essential nature, is oriented toward, and it is what is enclosed in both East and West by the Midgard serpent. And we must go to these lengths in order wholly to connect ourselves in our feeling with what is actually going on. We shall acquire from this Central European nature some objectivity for ourselves in order not to be judged by the same impulses from which things are judged in the East and West, but to be able to stand before the great events of the present that we are experiencing out of truly supernational human impulses. Then we shall understand something of why Central European people are so misunderstood and even hated by those who surround them. Of course, we must be able to regard what is present in Central Europe as a mission for humanity as a whole, with all humility. We must be able to arrive at a mood that avoids any kind of arrogance. But we must also safeguard for ourselves the free awareness of what is to be carried out in Central Europe. The people of Central Europe have been imbued with a power emanating from their folk soul that has a constantly rejuvenating quality. It reached a high point in the ideals of Lessing, Schelling, Hegel, Fichte, Goethe and Grimm. However, everything at that time was living more within an aspiration toward idealism. This must now be developed further in a more concrete way. The profound ideas of German idealism must gain further substance through what can come from the spiritual domain, enabling them to be raised from mere ideas to living beings of the spiritual world. It is the greatness of the task of Central Europe that must now ensoul German hearts, together with the awareness of what needs to be defended from all sides, from where the Midgard serpent keeps the circle in its firm embrace. It is especially fitting that we who stand on the ground of spiritual science study in such a more elevated sense what is actually going on today. Moreover, we cannot be taking the innermost impulse of our spiritual science seriously enough if we do not feel how this spiritual scientific aspiration in each single person is connected with the aspiration of Central Europe as a whole, how it must be connected with the whole substantiality of this aspiration. We must be clear that much of what we have in mind is only present in a seed-like form, but that it is the task of Central Europe to enable these seeds to unfold in blossoms and in fruits. Just one example will be given to illustrate this. If a person tries gradually to engage in self-development through his meditation and concentration, through intimate work on his soul, all soul forces take on a different form than they have in ordinary life. The soul forces then, as it were, acquire a different quality. If he works really industriously on his development, as is described in the book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? He comes to the point of understanding 
understanding in a living way, and I would say livingly taking hold of the idea that in the moment when he approaches the actual spiritual world, he no longer thinks as one has to think in ordinary life. In ordinary life one thinks in such a way that thoughts begin to live within one. When one confronts the world of the senses, one is aware of one's ego and that this ego is having the thoughts. One connects one thought with another and thereby forms for oneself a judgment. One brings the thoughts together and lets them go their separate ways. In my book titled The Threshold of the Spiritual World, I have compared the development of thoughts with putting one's head in a world of living beings. Thoughts begin inwardly to swarm about. They become, if I may say so, living beings. And we are no longer the ones who lead one thought to another. They go from one thought to another. The one takes hold of the other and sets itself free from the other. The life of thoughts begins to become alive. Only when the thoughts, as it were, start to become vessels and containers that contract in the small space and then again become more extended like sacks or bags, can the beings of the higher hierarchies draw into our thoughts only then. Thus our own life, our whole thinking changes when we enter livingly into the spiritual world. One then begins to perceive that on other planets there live not human beings as on the earth but other beings, that the other planets are inhabited by other beings. These other beings of other planets penetrate into our thinking that has become alive. And we no longer think about the beings of other worlds and cosmic spheres, but they live in us. They live united with our self. Thinking has, therefore, become a completely different soul quality. It has developed from the point where it was formerly into another soul quality, into a quality that extends its influence and activity above us and becomes identical with the world which is the world of spirit. Here we have an example of what must arise within humanity if it is to develop the state in which it is now living into a higher one for the future of the earth. It must indeed become something that people all share that such thinking is possible and that only through such thinking is a person able to make his acquaintance with the spiritual world. This does not mean that everyone needs to become a spirit researcher, no more than anyone wanting to understand the achievements of chemistry needs to become a chemist. After all, even though there can be only a small number of spirit researchers, anyone can, through unprejudiced thinking, see and understand the truth of what the spirit researcher says. But it must become clear that in the course of life there reside within a person soul capacities, which once he has passed through the gate of death, likewise of themselves become what they become in an initiate. When someone crosses the threshold of death, thinking becomes a completely different capacity of soul. It reaches out into the world of being. It is a continual extending of feeling antenna, and the higher worlds are embraced within these feeling antenna, and one experiences them directly. Now, there was a highly characteristic figure in the nineteenth century who, through his wit and erudition, for he was indeed clever, 
contributed to the forming of the materialistic world conception, Ludwig Feuerbach. He wrote a book entitled Thoughts About Death and Immortality, and it is interesting to read the following from this book. Feuerbach says something along these lines. The highest things that a person can develop out of himself are his thoughts. He cannot develop soul capacities higher than thoughts. Were he to be able to develop soul capacities higher than thoughts, that which originates from the dwellers of the starry worlds would be enabled to penetrate his head, and instead of thoughts he would have in his head the deeds and activities of the beings who are on the planets. This seems so absurd to Ludwig Feuerbach that he naturally considers anyone saying something of this kind to be ill. Think how interesting it is that a person who becomes a materialist because he rejects the idea of higher soul capacities comes to understand the nature of the soul capacity that represents the higher development of thinking. He even describes it. But he has so terrible a fear, so terrible a dread of this development, that precisely because it would have to take the course that he suspects, he rejects this soul capacity as an impossibility, as sheer fantasy. The trend of intellectual development in the 19th century is so close to what needs to be striven for and at the same time so distant from it, because it is indeed, as it were, thrust forth from the inner consciousness toward what is being sought, but is unable to enter into the depths, since it must be regarded as absurd, since it is truly feared, quite massively feared. Central European cultural life must come into its own, and we shall then find that from this Central European cultural life Precisely that which overcomes this fear will develop. What seeks to suppress this spirit light of Central Europe has become too strong. Some examples of this may also be given. Hegel, the German philosopher, raised his voice in vain against the over-appreciation of Newton. When you hear physicists speaking today, you can read about what I am saying in many popular works, you will hear Newton is the great exponent of the theory of gravity, a teaching through which alone the cosmos can be explained. Hegel said, What did Newton actually do? He clothed what Kepler, the German astronomer, had expressed in mathematical formulas. For nothing is contained in Newton's works that Kepler has not already said. Kepler worked out of that outlook whereby the whole of the soul is active, not only the head. Newton, however, brought everything into a system and thereby made all sorts of errors of judgment, for example, the idea that the sun's influence is extended into the wider periphery, which is not applicable to the movement of the planets. For Newton, it really is as though the sun had physical arms and that it stretches out these arms and attracts the planets. But the German philosopher's warning that Central European culture would be overwhelmed in this area by British culture was in vain. To mention another example, Goethe formulated a theory of color that arose wholly out of Central European thinking and which one will only understand if one recognizes, to some extent, the connections of the physical domain with the realm of spirit. 
The world did not accept Goethe's theory of color, but preferred that of Newton. Goethe also established a theory of evolution. The world did not understand it, and it was only prepared to accept what was promoted in a popularized, materialistic way as a theory of evolution in Darwinism. One can say that becoming aware of the forces that people of Central Europe, encircled as they are by the Midgard serpent, have is what is needed so as not to give way to the influx of rationalism and empiricism. You see the colossal task that lies before us. You see the greatness of the ideal. Because things continue to flow, as one might say, in the stream of appearances, people do not pay attention when one asserts the Central European identity. I do not know how many have noticed the following circumstance. When, from the reasons that were specified yesterday in the public lecture, our spiritual scientific movement had to free itself from the specifically British movement of the Theosophical Society, and when long ago what is now taking place in the war was in a certain sense anticipated in the realm of spirit, and which for good reasons preceded or anticipated it, I spoke about and explained the whole affair in terms of its symptoms. There are foolish people who want to pass judgments about our spiritual scientific movement and have often said, after all, this Central European spiritual scientific movement has likewise derived from what it has received from the British theosophical movement. I should like to recall that I said, I say this not out of personal reasons, but because it is the situation, the whole crux of the matter characterized in one symptom, that before I had any outward connection with the British Theosophical Movement, I gave some lectures in Berlin that were subsequently printed in my book titled Mysticism at the Dawn of the Modern Age. No one will find any influence from the West in this book, and everything in it is developed purely out of the intellectual life of Central Europe, out of the spiritual mystical movement from Meister Eckhart to Angelus Silesius. And when I came to London for the first time, one of the leading lights of the Theosophical Society, Mr. Mead, who had read the book following its translation into English, said that the whole of Theosophy could be found in it. To the extent that people have admitted that they can go along with us, we could, of course, unite ourselves with the whole affair, but it has not really altered the situation. This is what it amounts to that we are aware of our tasks within Central European spiritual culture and that we never deviate from them. Awards and medals of one kind or another have been sent back to the English, diplomas and the like. This is perhaps of less importance. What will be really important is that one sends back Newtonianism and the distinctively English Darwinism, that is, liberates Central European cultural life from them. And in this connection, something can be learned from the way that, free from all other influences, Central European cultural life has made its mark in the form of spiritual science. But one must take this to heart, consider what is essential, and stand firmly on this ground. It is quite extraordinary how mysteriously things actually work. Consider the following case. Ernst Haeckel has actually endeavored throughout his life to guide the German conception of the world along tracks that are wholly influenced by British thinking, 
by the British nature and character. His writings are completely pervaded by British thinking, British empiricism. And now he is the first to denounce everything about England. These are processes that are enacted in the unconscious regions of the Central European soul. They are also things which, in such a soul, are closely connected with karma. Just think what it means when Heckel stands before the world and says that he has himself brought to fulfillment the first great deed of the great scientist Huxley, in that he coined the proposition that human bones are similar to animal bones, that he, Heckel, has then referred to the great change in the conception of the descent of man, and that he introduced nothing into the theory of evolution other than what came from the West. And when one then sees that he is now compelled to denounce what his entire intellectual life has built up, it is the most tragic present outcome for such a soul that can be imagined. It is spiritual dynamite, for it shatters all the foundations on which such a soul stands. And so one sees into the depths of what is actually going on at present, but also into the awful side of it that we need to be aware of. Only when one really studies things in this way will one come to be able to broaden one's conception of them beyond the narrow horizon that often prevails today. One will, before all else, be able to discern a great teaching, and this will be the most beautiful and at the same time the most humbling and sublime teaching, the teaching of that to which the all-prevailing might of the world spirit has destined the people of Central Europe who now, surrounded by the Midgard serpent, are enclosed as though in a fortress, surrounded by enemies on all sides. Only if what is happening becomes a great symbol of the deepest weaving and working of worlds will we be freed from a limited conception of the difficult, destiny-laden events of the present. And only then will we feel that we must make ourselves worthy of what, say, Fichte has said, also at a time when Germany was undergoing great challenges, in the title Addresses to the German Nation, where, as he says, he wanted to speak, quote, quite simply for Germans and by Germans, and spoke in the way that a German had to speak at that time to a German. Close quote. But just as Fichte spoke at that time of everything that has to do with the German mission, the German circle of duties, so are the difficulties that we are experiencing today within the encirclement of hate-filled enemies, that which we have to experience as the dawning light of Central European consciousness. Indeed, something that can be found at the end of Fichte's addresses can be reformulated today, so that it says, For the healing of mankind, the spiritual world conception must flow into human souls, and the world spirit looks toward those who live in Central Europe so that they become a mouthpiece for what it has to say and to bring to mankind in an ongoing process of revelation. One can therefore look upon what the sons of Germany and Central Europe have to defend with body and blood and soul without arrogance and without national egotism. Nevertheless, one must also become conscious of this, then alone the huge sacrifices that have to be made and the sufferings that follow can give rise to something that brings healing to mankind. 
for we stand at an important threshold, at a significant threshold. And one could characterize this threshold in human evolution by saying that in the future the abyss between the physical and the spiritual realms, between the physically living and the spiritually living, between the earthly and that which lies beyond earthly death, must be bridged. The time must, as it were, come upon us when not only are the souls who go about in a physical body alive to us, but when we feel ourselves to be part of that greater world to which the souls belong who live disembodied between death and a new birth in the world that in great style we call our own. The attention of human beings must be directed beyond what only our physical eyes can see. We indeed stand at the threshold to this new experience, to this new consciousness. And what I said to you of the widening of consciousness, of the raising of consciousness to a higher world, must become a familiar way of looking at things. Central European culture is prepared for making this a familiar experience. It really is prepared for this. I have shown you that the best minds of the 19th century still had a fear of having an awareness of what lies at the depths of the soul. And in any case, out of earthly forces, the soul is unable as yet to devote attention to this. To be sure that thinking to which supersensible forces and supersensible beings extend their influence is a present reality, and it makes itself manifest at that time when a person passes through the gate of death, Materialists are fearful of admitting that human consciousness could be thus extended, that the barrier between physical and spiritual experience, between what lies on this side of death and beyond it, can fall away. And because they are afraid, they reject it as fanciful, fantastic, and even as a sign of mental illness. But it will come to be recognized that when a person has passed through the portal of death, the forces that he develops are those that he has already now between birth and death. However, they work at such a deep level that he does not perceive them. They cause things to arise within him that are indeed enacted in him, but which he does not attend to in the ordinary course of life. With the forces of which a person has knowledge, with these forces of thinking, feeling, and will alone, physical earthly life would not be possible. If he could only think, feel, and will as he is able to now, he would never be capable of, for example, forming his body in such a way that the brain functions as it should. To this end, formative forces of a sculptural nature had to play their part. However, they already belong to what the soul no longer perceives in physical experience, to what forms part of a wider consciousness as a segment of the consciousness that we have in ordinary life. When someone passes through the gate of death, he does not have a lack of consciousness, but lives initially in a consciousness that is much richer and more full of content than the consciousness here in physical life. For the body carves out a portion of a more extensive consciousness and shows everything that can be shown, but everything is still only in the form of a reflection. Nevertheless, what is in the body and what a person carries across the threshold of death does indeed have a wider consciousness. 
And when someone has passed through the gate of death, he is within this wider consciousness. He has not too little, but, on the contrary, too much, too rich a consciousness when he crosses the threshold of death. I have spoken about this in my Vienna cycle at Easter 1914. A person has a richer consciousness after death, and when, after that backward review, which has often been described, is over, he enters for a time into a kind of sleeping state, not an actual state of sleep, but a condition which is brought about through the fact that he is in a richer state of consciousness than he is here. And just as our eyes are dazzled by an excess, a surfeit of light, so is a person overwhelmed by the excess of consciousness and he must first learn to orient himself. The apparent sleep consists only in that in this excess of consciousness he is orienting himself in such a way that he can attune it with what he can bear after the events of his life. It is therefore a process of dampening down the excess of consciousness which manifests itself after death to an endurable level. You must clarify these things through the details given in the Vienna cycle. I should like to illustrate this by means of two pertinent examples. I could give many such examples, for recently and also already earlier, many of the friends from our circle have passed through the gate of death. But through the particular nature of the circumstances, simply because these deaths occurred recently, these considerations are more immediate in nature. And I should like to begin with such examples in order to speak to you of what can come so close to our hearts, because this has happened among us from the circle of our spiritual scientific movement. We recently lost a dear friend from the physical plane, and it was my task to speak for the soul who had passed through the gate of death. The impulses of the spiritual world that spoke to me sufficiently clearly in this case rendered it a clear necessity that I should characterize the particular soul qualities of this befriended soul. It was in Zurich, and we were in attendance at the cremation of a dear member of our spiritual scientific movement. In the relatively long time that had elapsed between the onset of death on a Wednesday evening and the cremation on the Monday morning, it is understandable that the backward review by the etheric body had already ceased. The necessity came to me quite involuntarily from the spiritual world to begin and end what I had to say beside the coffin with words which sought to characterize the inner nature of the soul. This inner nature of the friend who had departed in the midst of life was such that one had to immerse oneself in this being and through becoming identified with it, inwardly created spiritually. That is, one had to enable one's thinking to dive down into the soul of the dead person and to make it possible for what was weaving in the soul of the deceased to flow into one's own thoughts. One then acquired the possibility to say, as it were, with respect to this soul, how the soul was in life and how it is now after death. And this resulted out of itself that it was clothed in the following words. I had to speak the following words at the beginning and at the end of the cremation. Quote, you appeared among us. The moving gentleness of your being spoke out of the quiet power of your eyes. An enlivening peace flowed in the waves 
with which your gaze conveyed the weaving of your inner being to all things and to other people. And this being was ensouled by your voice, which eloquently, more through the manner of speaking than the words themselves, revealed what lay hidden within your beautiful soul. Yet wordlessly they fully revealed the devoted love to those attentive to it. This being who, from a quiet, noble beauty, proclaimed a receptive awareness of world-soul creativity. Close quote. This is how the being of this soul presented itself through my becoming identified with the soul in the days before the cremation, once the backward review by the etheric body was over. The soul had not yet found the possibility to orient itself in the overwhelming intensity of consciousness. It was, in a certain sense, in a sleeping state when the body was about to be cremated. The cremation address was spoken with these words at the beginning and at the end. What then happened was that the flame, what seems like but is not actually the flame, took hold of the body, and while the body was being engulfed by this flame-like element, which is, however, only the rising warmth and heat, a moment of awakening came over the soul. And now one could see how the soul was looking back at the whole scene which had taken place among the people who were at the cremation. It was looking back quite especially at what had been spoken. And there then began the natural sinking back into the state of excess consciousness, or as one might say, into unconsciousness. Later one could perceive a moment when there was again such a looking back. This then lasted ever longer until finally there would be a complete orientation in the excess of consciousness. But something important can be discerned from this. It was apparent that because words had been spoken at the cremation that came from her own soul, these words enkindled the backward review within it. It found something awakening in these words. From this one can learn that one of the most important things after death is to oversee one's own experience. One must, as it were, begin after death with self-knowledge. Here in earthly life one can indeed do without self-knowledge, even to the extent that it is true that someone who is no ordinary person and also no ordinary literary figure, but a renowned professor of philosophy, Dr. Ernst Mach, not Ferdinand Mack, I would not even mention him, in his title Analysis of Sensations, a very famous work, makes a confession along these lines. When I was a young man, I was walking along the road when I suddenly saw someone coming toward me. What an unpleasant, repulsive face, I thought. How astonished I was when I discovered that I had seen my own face in profile. So he had seen his own face, which he knew so little that he could return the verdict that he did. And the same professor relates a later instance of something that occurred when he was already a famous professor of philosophy, namely that after a long journey he boarded a bus, as a man also got on from the other direction. A big mirror hung opposite him, and he expresses his thoughts quite correctly when he says that he had thought, what is this down-at-heel, unkempt schoolmaster doing here? And again he recognized himself. And he adds, so I knew the demeanor of the type of person better than my own. 
This is a beautiful example of how little a person knows even his outer form in life, unless he is a coquettish woman who is always looking in the mirror. But people have far, far less knowledge of their soul qualities, far more of which goes right past them. One can become a famous professor of philosophy without this self-knowledge, but one needs this self-knowledge when one has passed through the portal of death. A person must therefore look back to that point in his development from which he passed through death, and he must recognize himself there. Just as someone who is in physical existence and looks back with the ordinary forces of life is unable to perceive his own birth, in that this is never accessible to the ordinary powers of his soul, there is no one who can look back to his physical birth with his ordinary soul forces. It is equally necessary that in every instant the moment of death is a present reality to which one looks back. Death is always something that one keeps in view as the last significant event. When viewed from the other side, from beyond death's threshold, death is something altogether different than from the physical side. It is the most beautiful experience that can be perceived from the other side, from the side of life between death and a new birth. It is that which appears as the glorious picture of the eternal victory of the spiritual over the physical. Thus death is viewed as such a picture, the constant awakener of the highest forces of human nature. When this human nature is living in spiritual experience between death and a new birth, it therefore means that when the soul looks back, when it tries to look back, it must initially contemplate itself. Precisely in these cases that we have had to experience recently, it was so clear whence the impulse originated to characterize this soul in a particular way, so as to approach it in this impulse of gaining knowledge of itself in looking back. Thus the so-called living works together with the so-called dead. And such a correspondence between the so-called living and the so-called dead will arise with ever greater frequency. Another case which we experienced recently is that of our dear friend Fritz Mitcher. Although Fritz Mitcher is less known to the friends here, his influence has spread among many other anthroposophists through his lectures, through what he has in a wonderful way achieved from friend to friend, through the way that he engaged with anthroposophical life, an engagement which must be regarded as exemplary, for the reason that he, whose inner inclinations were forged by undergoing and receiving the benefits of a learned education, sought, in accordance with his disposition, to imbue everything that he endeavored to do with a scholarly quality, to encompass it with the intimate nature of his soul life, but then to make it part of his anthroposophical conception of the world. We need this way of working, especially in what we want to bring to the future, the benefits of spiritual scientific ideals. We need people who try to penetrate with understanding the culture of the time in order to immerse it in the stream of spiritual culture who in a certain sense make the sacrifice of pervading the culture of the time with the stream of spirituality. In this case, too, and I am speaking only of things which have arisen through the karma of necessity, karma ensured that I had to speak at the cremation. And here, too, 
it arose from inner necessity that I characterized the nature of our dear friend at the beginning and at the end of the cremation address. And this is the characterization I gave, quote, As a hope that gladdens us, so do you venture upon the field where spirit blossoms of the earth would, through the power of soul-being, manifest themselves to the questing spirit. Your longing had its deep affinity with a pure love of truth. The goal to which you tirelessly aspire throughout your life was creation from the spirit light. You cultivated your fine gifts to follow with sure step the radiant path of spirit knowledge, unswayed by outward opposition, as a true servant of the truth. Your spirit organs you enhanced, that they boldly and persistently thrust error from you to both sides of the path and create for you a realm for truth. To fashion yourself that it reveal the purity of light, that the sun power of the soul might radiate its strength within you, was your concern and joy. Other cares, other joys, they barely touched your soul. For knowledge, as the light that to existence meaning gives, held for you life's truest worth. As a hope that gladdens us, so do you venture upon the field where spirit blossoms of the earth would, through the power of soul-being, manifest themselves to the questing spirit a loss that deeply us aggrieves. So do you vanish from the field where earthly seeds of spirit have matured for your senses' spheres in the womb of soul-being? Feel how we look lovingly up to the heights that called you now away for other creating. Extend your strength from realms of spirit to the friends you've left behind. Hear the entreaty of our souls sent to you in confidence. We need here for earthly work strong power from spirit lands, which to our dead friends we owe. As a hope that gladdens us, a loss that deeply us aggrieves, let us hope that from far and near, unforsaken for our life, you shine as starry soul in spirit realms. Close quote. During the following night, the soul that had not wholly come to the point of orienting itself gave back, out of itself, something by way of an answer, which has a connection with the lines that had been directed toward its being at the cremation. Such words as these are spoken in such a way that one's own soul faithfully writes them down without any further ado. They are written as derived from the other soul to whom an orientation has been made and I was utterly unaware that two verses are constructed in a quite particular way, until I heard these words from the soul of the friend who had crossed the threshold of death. Quote, to fashion myself, that it reveal the purity of light, that the sun power of the soul might radiate its strength within me, was my concern and joy. Other cares, other joys, they barely touched my soul, for knowledge, as the light that to existence meaning gives, held for me life's truest worth. Only now could I know why these verses are constructed as they are. I had myself spoken them in exactly the same form. Quote, 
to fashion yourself that it reveal the purity of light, that the sun power of the soul might radiate its strength within you, was your concern and joy. But every, in quotes, you came back as, in quotes, me. Every your came back as my. They came back thus changed by the soul speaking about its own being. This is an example of how there is a correspondence, how there is already a mutual relationship between the world here and the world there in the time after death. That this awareness penetrates into human souls is an essential part of the significance of our spiritual scientific movement. That the world also of those who live between death and a new birth becomes a world in which we know ourselves to be together with them is something that spiritual science will give to humanity and so expand the world from the narrow sphere of the reality in which man provisionally lives. However, this is intimately connected with what needs to happen in Central Europe, and anyone who has listened well will find in the words directed toward Fritz Mitcher's soul what is deeply connected with the significance of our spiritual scientific movement, for these words are spoken out of a deep inner necessity. Quote, Hear the entreaty of our souls, sent to you in confidence. We need here for earthly work strong power from spirit lands, which to our dear friends we owe. Close quote. It can sometimes be that, and even though this is not really the case, it may appear to be from a recent perspective, people may doubt whether the souls that are incarnated in the flesh here on the earth will actually do what must necessarily be done from a spiritual conception of the world for the well-being of humanity in the earth. But anyone who is fully and livingly involved in the spiritual scientific movement cannot have such doubts, because he knows that the forces of those who have ascended into the spiritual worlds, after they have felt themselves strengthened through having absorbed spiritual science into their being, are working into the stream within which we stand in life. And it is like coming to an understanding with the soul of a friend who has passed through the gate of death when one recalls its life, calling to mind what a spiritual movement can owe to the power of the friend. When one is able to come to an understanding with it, to remain united with its forces, so that we always have it among us, so that it continues to be active among us. It is not merely a matter of receiving ideas and concepts of a spiritual scientific nature, but that we create a movement, a spiritual movement here on earth, that we truly imbue with spiritual forces. It is in this moment appropriate that out of the feelings that will doubtlessly be living in the souls of the friends who are present, to direct thoughts toward the soul of someone who has always devoted his forces to this branch or group, as an indication of our wish to feel united with him, of our wish to know ourselves to be united with his forces after he passed through the gate of death, we are rising from our seats. The Leipzig friends all know of which befriended soul I am speaking, and they have directed their thoughts to this soul with moving hearts. These have been the ideas which it has been my task to bring to your attention today in the time that we have been able to be together. These words were ensouled by the awareness that the weight 
of the difficult and destiny-laden days in which we are living must be removed from those who will walk peacefully over the earth, in whom the forces of peace will be active. But because of the way that a great deal will and indeed must be strongly transformed by what is now happening in the life of earthly humanity, we who feel an allegiance to spiritual science must be especially mindful of how much it matters that on the ground for which so much blood is flowing, for which souls are so often going through the portal of death, on which so many fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters are mourning, what can be accomplished by those whose souls can be illumined by the future assuring thoughts of spiritual science must indeed be brought about. Yes, those thoughts which come from the consciousness of the living connection of the human soul with the spiritual world must be in the ascendant. These spiritual worlds will now pervade souls, and there will be spiritual forces that are brought forth by our destiny-laden days. Just think how many are going through the gate of death in this time in the flower of their youth. Consider that the etheric bodies of these people who are crossing the threshold of death between their twentieth and fortieth year are etheric bodies which could have maintained the body here in physical life for decades. These etheric bodies are being separated from the physical bodies, but they still retain forces within themselves to work here for the physical world. These forces will work further in the spiritual worlds, separated from the unspent etheric bodies that have passed through the gate of death. The spirituality from the unspent etheric bodies of heroic fighters becomes a source of radiant brightness for the spiritual salvation and advancement of mankind. But that which streams down must meet with the thoughts that can stream forth from the soul's that will be able to receive them in spirit consciousness through spiritual science. We shall therefore summarize the thoughts that we have brought before our souls in some words which represent the connection of the awareness that has been brought by spiritual scientific thoughts with the events of the present time, which express how the space for the coming time of peace must be filled with thoughts that have reached up from souls into the spiritual worlds from souls that have been imbued with spiritual science. Then will that which is struggled for in our time with such great sacrifice, with blood and death, will be able in the right sense to bear blossom and fruit when souls are found that turn their minds to the realm of spirit. Hence, we who are mindful of days of such grievous destiny today may say, quote, from the courage of the fighters, from the blood on fields of battle, from the grief of the bereaved, from the people's sacrifice, there will ripen fruit of spirit if souls will turn in consciousness toward the realm of spirit. The end of Lecture 4